Luke chapter 10, verse number 25. The Bible says, and behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? And so he answered and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered rightly, do this and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Then Jesus answered and said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And so he went to him, and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, take care of him, and whatever more you spend when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, he who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do Likewise, today we continue in our series, Finding Christ in Crisis, which seemingly is becoming more and more difficult, but is more and more necessary. Our task as believers is no easy one. We must cut through all of the noise and turn to the one who has the words of eternal life and hope and healing. And of course, his name is Jesus. Last week, we talked about what it's going to take to heal injustice and racism in our message, God Heal Our Land. Today, I want to turn our attention to what I really think it's going to take, and that's God healing our hearts. And as we do, I want to remind you that's exactly who God is. He is Jehovah Rapha, our great physician, the God that heals us, not just physically, but emotionally and spiritually as well. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, would you speak by your power, by your might, by your Holy Spirit? Would you speak despite the vessel? Would you speak profoundly to the hearts of your people? In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen, amen. At home, you can be seated. I know you were seated anyway with your feet up, kicked back in your easy boy chair anyway. Probably didn't even have your Bible in your hand, but that's all right. We're going to preach anyway. What is happening all around right now reminds me of an age-old statement. United we stand, divided we fall. A statement that perhaps got its origins from the very words of Jesus when in Mark chapter 3 verse number 25, he said, if a house is divided against itself, it cannot stand. And this division is causing chaos and confusion where people simply cannot wrap their brains around what is or isn't truth, what is or isn't justice, what is or isn't good, what is or isn't right, what is or isn't wrong. The wisdom that we need right now can only come from above. And for that reason, I am grateful that Jesus himself has packed poignant, powerful principles 
in the most famous parable that he ever spoke, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And as we unveil the truths that he teaches, my prayer is that his words, his words, not the words of the news cycle, but his words would become our guiding light and bring us the change, the justice, and the healing that our hearts are longing for. And as we come to the text, we immediately get struck with the first key that will cut through all the noise as we surrender our hearts to the Lord for him to heal. And the first key is this. We must be willing to have real conversations. You say, what do you mean, pastor? Well, here we have a lawyer, a teacher of the law, who comes to Jesus with the right question, but with the wrong motive. He doesn't come to Jesus because he really wants an answer. He comes to Jesus, the Bible says, to test him, to trap him. It's not, it's not an honest conversation. It's a, it's a setup conversation. But the question that he leads with is the right question. And he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Great question. Question that we hope people would sincerely want to ask. But this man was asking the right question, but with a wrong motive. He didn't want an answer. On the surface, it seemed appropriate. But, but, but under the surface, he was cast in shade Jesus' way. And we know this because he, he's a teacher of the law. He understands what the law says. He doesn't want to learn. He doesn't want to understand. He wants to make sure that Jesus has got it right. This is the politician that pulls out all the stops for political theater in order to prostitute votes. That's this guy right here. He's not coming because he wants to have a dialogue that leads to a healthy place. He's coming because he wants to put Jesus in his place. He's asking because, and the context surrounding the text conclusively reveals this, he's asking because he doesn't like, or more precisely, he hates who Jesus is hanging out with. And he hates the fact that the people who Jesus is hanging out with are being invited to come into the kingdom, and they are accepting the invitation. And so this man, being a Jew, being a Pharisee, being a being a, a leader of the law, he wants to go to Jesus and he wants to set, you've got to have some gumption to set Jesus straight. I mean, there would be a lot of people today, believe it or not, that if Jesus were walking the earth with the different opinions that he had, would try to set Jesus straight today. Because we don't really care whether it comes from Jesus or not. We are more concerned, is this what we believe or not? And so he comes to Jesus and he's got, he's got an ulterior motive because Jesus is hanging with the wrong kind of people. He's hanging with sinners. He's hanging with publicans and wine bibbers and gluttons and prostitutes and even le lepers. And he's inviting them into the kingdom. And interestingly enough, the message of Jesus actually attracted these kind of people to want to come into the kingdom, which is astounding to me. Because the message that the church for the most part preaches alienates people like that. But the message that Jesus preached attracted people like that. And he doesn't like the fact that Jesus is doing this and he's joining himself. But notice this. Notice who, and by the way, if you're just a casual Bible scholar, you should be able to pick this up. Jesus hung with people that most would not hang with. He hung with the overlooked, the outcasted, the marginalized, the oppressed, the left behind, the forgotten by the time. And this lawyer who I have affectionately called Mr. Rogers because the, he's, he's the who's my neighbor guy. You know, so we're, we're going to call him Mr. Mr. Rogers. This lawyer has the right question, but he's got the wrong motive. 
It's not on the level. It's not, it's not a real conversation. There is an agenda. It is mine. And he already has the answer before he asks the question. And this is my, precisely my first point in seeing our hearts healed. Can we please have a real conversation? Can we have a conversation where we are not trying to trap or entrap one another? Can we have a conversation where we are not trying to expose or embarrass one another? Can we have a conversation where we are not trying to discredit or demonize? Can we have a conversation where we are not trying to fuel something or fight with somebody? Can we have a conversation where we can handle each other's honest differences and ignorances and help each other to learn can we listen can we come to a place where we realize that we are all human beings none of whom have a corner on the truth market can we realize what td jake said a couple weeks ago you know this i say it almost every week he's my favorite preacher he said this the people who we think are really right are not as right as we think they are And the people that we think are really wrong are not as wrong as we think they are. Can we talk to one another instead of tweeting at one another? Can we sit down as friends and not fight on Facebook as enemies? Can we have a real conversation? Can we stop allowing the media or the politicians to determine the narrative? Can we have a real conversation? Over the last two weeks, I have heard from lots of people who were talking at me in emotion And not talking to me. Of course, most of those conversations were via tweet or email or Facebook comments. Because it's amazing how people temper what they want to say and how they say it when they stare you in the face. But when they could tweet it at you, stick it in in a comment or email it to you, it's like they just vomit all over the place. And so what I do when people do that kind of stuff to me, if I know who they are, I call them. They're like shocked. They're like, I didn't expect you to call me because I just, I just threw all sorts of shade your way, you know, and I, and I call them. And when I call them, I'm very disarming. I don't call them like I was calling you because you know what you said was wrong. I call them and said, you know, I, 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 how you doing? How's everything going? I hope you and your family are well. I just want to talk. Obviously, something that I said has upset you, bothered you. And, and I'd, I'd like for you to explain that to me so that I can perhaps, you know, guide the conversation and get us to a better place because the last thing that I would ever want to do is offend you on purpose. And sure enough, every single one of those conversations that I've had this week has ended extremely well. And it's ended most of the time with an apology, which I didn't even ask for. You know, you, you shouldn't force people to apologize. People need to apologize from their heart. And what causes people to apologize from their heart is, is when, we, when we do what Jesus is teaching us here. Real conversations, not conversations with an agenda. I don't call those people so that I can be right. See, our, our, we, are, we are fighting to be right instead of listening to be heard. And if we change our ears, we change our perspective, we change the way we approach things, that's when our heart is going to be healed because I've learned something the older I get. It's true. Listen to me. I know there's a few young people here. The older you get, generally speaking, generally speaking, okay, and and I hate to generalize, but the older you get, the wiser you get. It used to be if somebody tweeted at me, I tweet right back at them. There you go. 
If somebody said something about me, man, I'd take it right to the pulpit. I would blast them from the pulpit. They would, I wouldn't name their name or nothing like that, but I'd throw their story right in there. And know what's funny about that? When I used to do that as a young preacher, the person who I was blasting never knew I was blasting them. They'd be like, yeah, right on, right on, right on. It's like, no, I'm talking about you, you know? And I've learned that we need to have real conversation. That's how you heal a broken and a hurting and an angry heart. Instead of causing the embers of hate to continue to be stoked and continue to add more fuel to the fire. But then number two, if God is going to heal our hearts, we must redefine who our neighbor is. Jesus sniffs out the shade. And instead of answering the question, which had an ulterior motive, he answers with a question and a parable. I love this about Jesus. We were going to do a series called Savage Jesus because Jesus was savage. And, you know, a lot of people think that if somebody throws a question your way, you have to answer it. I think that if the motive is not right, we don't have to answer it. And Jesus, a lot of times, didn't answer questions directly because he sniffed out the motive. And so what he did was he steered the conversation in a different direction. And so what he does is he asks a question in return. He says to Mr. Rogers, the question, what does the law say? The inference is you're asking me a question to which you already know the answer. In other words, you're an expert in the law. You know what the law says. Why are you coming to me asking me this question? I'm on to you. I feel you. I'm going to be nice about it, but I'm not going to let you just walk all over me during this time. And the guy gives Jesus the right answer. He says, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, so you know. So, so, so you already knew what you asked me to clue you in on. More precisely, Jesus says, you've answered rightly. Do this and you will live. But see, the guy really wasn't after an answer. He had an agenda. And so because he really wasn't after an answer, he, he goes back at it. He says, but he wanted to justify himself. Isn't that the cause of our problems right now? We want to justify ourselves. And you know what I found out? That simple acknowledgement of things that are wrong causes the need to justify ourselves to just get washed away. And now we can get to the root of the issue. But he wanted to justify himself. He said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? But it's not like, a, it's not like in Jesus, well, can you tell me? Because I'm kind of confused and really want to understand. Can you tell me who my neighbor is? It's more like this. And Jesus, now who is my neighbor? It's, it's sort of like the mother waving her finger at the child, you know. And what are we supposed to do after somebody gives us something? What's the magic word, please? That's, that's what he's doing. And, and who is my neighbor? And this is really not a sincere question. You know, the only, the, the, you know that only certain people in the Jewish mind were really neighbors, not everybody was considered a neighbor to the Jewish mind, only other Jews. And depending upon how up you are, were in the hierarchy of religion, strict observers of the law were neighbors. To the Jewish mind, only another Jew was a neighbor. And so the rabbis and teachers of the day taught crazy things. And some of you may have heard me say this before, teach this before. They had this, 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 fence law. And by the way, you know what fence laws are, right? You had the the laws, 
And then you had fence laws which surrounded the laws to prevent the people from getting close to breaking the law. And so they had this fence law that the rabbis taught, and it was this. If on the Sabbath day, you're just walking along, and it just so happens that a rock wall falls over on top of somebody. I mean, it just, just out of the blue, you know, the rock wall falls over on somebody. If you just happen to have that scenario, enough of the wall can be removed to see if the person is Jew or Gentile. If the person is Jew, you could remove the rest of the wall and save their life. But if they're Gentile, it's okay to leave them there to suffer and die in the street on the Sabbath day. The Jews believed that only other Jews were their neighbor. And so Jesus, once again, sniffs out the shade and the sarcasm behind the questions that and tells Mr. Rogers a little story about the neighborhood. He says, God gets mugged. Winds up being left for dead, but he's still alive. A priest sees him. Happy day, a priest, a religious person. Because he's supposed to help, but he walks on by. A Levi sees him. Oh, happy day. Because he's a religious person. For our context, he's a church-going person. He's supposed to help, but he chooses to walk on by. And then by chance, a Samaritan. I mean, Jesus is a master storyteller. A Samaritan, somebody who is hated by the Jewish community. Hate that if you were here last week or tuned in last week, 750 years of hate, a Samaritan walks by. And to the Jewish lawyer who's hearing this, and he's like, yeah, well, this guy's a no good guy. He's probably going to walk over to him and kick him right when he's down. But interestingly enough, the Samaritan is the guy that helps. Jesus ends it, and Jesus says, so here's my question for you. Which of the three were neighborly to the guy? And, and, and the, the Jewish lawyer, the, the Pharisee, he can't even get the word out. He can't say Samaritan. So he says, well, the guy that showed him mercy. And Jesus says, exactly. And what Jesus is doing is Jesus is trying to send a message to us to broaden our understanding of who is our neighbor. And he does this masterfully in the story. Let me show you a few things. First of all, notice what he says. He says, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among thieves. Notice this. Who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed and left him half dead. A certain man. A faceless man. A person whose occupation, nationality, religion, or race are not given. Jesus does this purposefully and masterfully. You see, if the priest or the Pharisee Pharisee were able to determine what kind of person that was, then they might have stopped to help. But Jesus says in the story, the man was faceless. And when Jesus tells this story, he tells this in such a way that you could not identify the man because in Bible times, there were a couple of ways to identify a person laying on the road. One was by their speech and two was by their clothing but Jesus masterfully has the guy stripped of what he's wearing and left half dead so he can't speak and you can't see what he's wearing so you can't tell from afar what kind of person that is over there all you know is that it's a human being in need of help that's all you know Jesus's point is not to strip the man of his identity Jesus's point to us is not to disregard the uniqueness about each and every one of us. Jesus is not telling us 
to stop being white or stop being black or stop being brown or stop being a police officer or stop being whatever it is, a category, a Democrat or a Republican. He's not telling us to stop doing that. Our differences are something that in many ways we should embrace, especially the ones that God created us to be. God's the one that created the diversity. But what Jesus is doing is he's telling us that when it comes to seeing people a certain kind of way, we need to see not just some, but everyone as our neighbor, black and white, red and brown, Democrat or Republican, gay or straight, Christian or non-Christian, sinner or state, saint, rich or poor, politician or regular person, legal or illegal, voted for Hillary or voted for Trump, agree with your worldview or disagree with your worldview, cop or criminal. The truth of the matter is in the eyes of God, every single person is our neighbor. Everyone. That's what he's saying right here. And what he's saying is this. There are no loopholes. You cannot find something that in God's eyes would justify you treating somebody like they weren't your neighbor. You can't bring up enough dirt on them to justify why you treated them in such a way as they weren't your neighbor. You can't cast enough shade on the organization that they are a part of or the demographic that they are a part of in order to justify not treating them like they're your neighbor. Jesus said, when somebody's in pain, see them as your neighbor. Help them. Reach out to them. Redefine who your neighbor is. ABC, and you've heard me share this, but I want to give you a little bit more detail. Some years ago, did a little experiment, and they ran it in their segment, what would you do? They decided to find out what motivates somebody to be a good Samaritan. And here's what they did. They put a little ad in the newspaper, also on, on uh, 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 the World Wide Web. I don't know why I got confused about World Wide Web, but they put it on you know, Google and all that. And, and they took applications, and it was an ad saying that they were looking for people to try out on-camera tryouts to be part of the ABC News. And those who responded, they gave a phone interview. Those who were selected, they asked to come in for an appointment over the course of two days. And when they arrived for those appointments, the volunteers met with the ABC producer who talked to them in general about the audition, didn't go into a lot of detail, but told them all that they needed to have a topic to discuss and to to share a little speech on in front of the camera. And uh, they held up some cards, and they, they made it seem like all the cards had different topics on it, but it was rigged. All the cards had the same topic on it. It was all the story of the Good Samaritan. And so each one picked one of the cards thinking they were picking arbitrarily, but they were picking the same story. And then the ABC producer told them all about the story of the Good Samaritan. After he finished telling them the story, he sent all of the candidates on a little trip to the studio that was set up where they would give their on-camera speech that they had to walk through a park. And, And for some, they just said, you know, go over there. And, uh, when you get there, they'll do what they have to do to others. They said, you got 10 minutes to get over there. And as they walked through this park, they had actors that were there who were playing one of the people in the story, the person left on the side of the road. And they found out that as people were in a hurry, as they had a 10-minute 10 limit, 10 time limit on getting there, that only 35% of those people stopped to help the person that was in distress. But if people weren't in a hurry, if they didn't think they stood to lose anything, 
then 80% of those people stop to help. And so they all of a sudden realize that one of the things that makes people either good Samaritans or not good Samaritans is how it is personally going to affect them. And so when stuff doesn't personally affect us, we don't care about the situation. When stuff doesn't personally affect us, it doesn't affect us. And why should we bother with it? Why should we talk about it? Why should we get involved in it? Why should we make a stand for it? Why should we say it? Let's just go on with, let's get back to life as normal again. Because when it doesn't personally affect us, we walk on by. But when it does, we're willing to stop. Interesting. But then they added one other thing. They added race into the mix. And they, they had the two, two guys, one black, one, one white, play the guy in need of help on the side of the street with blood, languishing, calling for help. And they found out that the person who was white on the side of the road was three times more likely to get help than the person that was black on the side of the road. Here was the interesting thing. By both black and brown and white, candidates that walk by. They found out that this view of helping somebody in need seemed to get muddied when they introduced race. But there was one woman. One woman who broke all the rules. She was a white woman who had asthma. And she was under the time constraint. But then when she saw the black man on the side of the road in need of help, she stopped. And she didn't have her cell phone with her. So she ran all the way to her car at the risk of her own asthma, got her cell phone, ran back to the guy, was talking and calling for help. And by the way, she was calling the cops for help. Because one of the things that we have to realize is not, not all cops are bad. And so she broke all the rules and they helped the guy and then they learned that the guy was an actor and, and the experiment kind of got exposed and they put out there all of the things. And here's what I took away from this. Church, we should be breaking the rules. We're the church for goodness sake. We've got to break the rules. We've got to break the stereotypes. We've got to break the who is our neighbor stuff. We've got to break the what we speak up for stuff. We've got to be those who break the rules. We've got to break free from all of this stuff, from injustice and discrimination and racism and violence and demonization and segregation and inequality and being politically correct and only advantages for some and labeling everyone as bad because of a few bad apples and lawlessness and and staying silent and injustice we've got to break the rules we are the church and not break the rules as society has set up the rules but the rules as Jesus himself has exemplified and lived out the rules we've got to break the rules but then number three and lastly in order for God to heal our hearts, our hearts must be made right. The first story ends with go and do likewise. Go and help. Go and be part of the solution. Not a suggestion, by the way. Go and do. I'm pausing because there's a conversation happening in my mind, even though there are words that are coming out of my mouth. Go and do. What are we supposed to go and do? You know, 
can we just be real for a minute? We have funneled the gospel through our experiences, our paradigms, what we've learned, what we've taught. And in many ways, we have even taken scriptures that were meant one way and turned them into another way. And you know I believe in the favor of God every way, but Luke chapter 4, verse number 19, when Jesus walked into the temple and took the, the, the scriptures of Isaiah and opened them up, that's not just a scripture about favor for us. That's a scripture about favor for the oppressed. And see, we, we, we've got to go and do, go and help, go and be a part of the solution, not advance for the problems, go and bind up somebody's wounds, go and sacrifice for somebody else's pain, go and care, go and be touched by the feeling of somebody else's infirmity, go and treat even though you don't like as your neighbor, go and do. And then verse number 38 says, after the go and do, the story of the Good Samaritan is over. Now what happened? As they went, that he entered a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house, and she had a sister called Mary who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she approached him, and she said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. And Jesus answered and said, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part which will not be taken away from her. Can you see it with me now? Jesus is fatigued. I was, I was sharing with somebody, I said, I'm exhausted mentally. I've, I, I've been dealing with the nonsense and the chaos and all of that and, and pastoring not just a, a one type of church. The uniqueness about faith church is we're not one type of church. We're not a white church. We're not a black church. We're not a brown church. We're not a this church or that. We're, we're a diverse church. We're not a church just full of civilians, but we're a church that has a lot of cops. And, and I'm emotionally exhausted. In two weeks, dealing with this. Imagine if you had to deal with it for a lifetime like so many people have. And, and Jesus, I could just see him like kind of spent. Like, man, these knuckleheads. I got to tell this lawyer, who's supposed to know the law, how he's supposed to act towards somebody. And so he just retreats to the home of Mary and Martha, where he could be real, where he could be vulnerable, where he could have a meal, where he doesn't have to watch everything that he says, doesn't have to be PC, and he just, he just gets there. And what's interesting to me is that this story is married with the story of the Good Samaritan. And, and, and you say, Pastor, what is the connection? Well, let me, let me connect the dots for you. First of all, when we come away from the story of the Good Samaritan, we're supposed to come away with, that was you and I laying on the ground. That was you and I stripped, beaten, and left for dead. That was you bleeding out and in need of help and hemorrhaging. That was you and I not being able to fix ourselves or our sin problem on our own. That was you and I destined to die if left without help. And while you and I were laying there, the law, the priest and the Levite came on by beckoning us to try to fix ourselves by morality and goodness, but it couldn't do it. We tried, but it left us bleeding. It left us dying. That was you and I on the side of the road. But the good Samaritan in the story, the one who came to our rescue by virtue of what he did for us on the cross is Jesus. And by virtue of our sin, we hated him. He could have walked by. He could have stayed in heaven. He could have ignored our plight. He could have left us suffer the consequences of our own poor choices. But like the good Samaritan, he came down 
to where we were. He traded places with us. The good Samaritan got off his horse and put the wounded man on top of it. And Jesus came down so that we could go up. He became sin so we could become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the good Samaritan. Like the good Samaritan, he did what he did at great expense to himself. Where's our willingness to do things even at great expense to ourselves? Taking a stand for what's right sometimes is at great expense to yourself. Taking a stand for justice, great expense sometimes for yourself. For liberty, for equality, great expense for yourself. The Samaritan used his bandages, his ointments, his wages, his money. Jesus, at the expense of his life, redeemed you and I, not with silver or blood, but by the precious blood of the land. The good Samaritan put him on his horse and took him to the inn and said to the innkeeper, here is some money for what he needs now. When I come back, I'll pay you for whatever else he incurs. Jesus not only saved us from the sin when we first met him, but he gave us a credit for everything that we were about to do, and he keeps on paying because when we make our bed in hell, he's there, and when it's our fault, he's there, and when life Life happens, it's there. And when we sin after we said we don't, we wouldn't. He's there when we're sick, he heals us. When we're broke, he provides for us. When we're depressed, he delivers us. When we're bound, he sets us free. When we're addicted, he gives us another chance. When we're worried, he gives us peace. Jesus doesn't throw people away like we throw people away. He keeps on coming. The good Samaritan. Jesus is that good Samaritan. He came to earth to save us. And when he left, just like the good Samaritan, here's a little money. But when I come back, he said, I'll take care of whatever else you need. He didn't just leave us by ourselves. When he left, he gave us the Holy Spirit. And he said, and I'm coming back. And the next time I come back, I'm not just coming back from the grave, but I'm coming back to make all things right. Jesus is the good Samaritan. Where the guy laying on the street And this is the part of the story where we are supposed to say to ourselves, the fact that Jesus loved us like that and didn't have to. We had every reason not to. Where he could have hated us, but he didn't. When we realize we've received that kind of love, this is where we realize that it is our righteous obligation To pass on that kind of love to our neighbor, a love that is supposed to be shed abroad in our hearts, regardless of what people believe and what side of the aisle they stand on. That's what it means to be a good neighbor. And church, I know that some of, some people in the church don't get this because of this issue, but the church has not treated, for example, the gay community like they're our neighbor. Just because somebody is wrong about an issue doesn't mean that we get to treat them any way that we want to treat them because that is contrary to what the scripture says. Here's the question though. Why do we? Why do we pass on by when the issue is not our issue? Why do we pass on by when it doesn't 
concern us. Well, I'm just minding my own business. You know, that's what the Lord would have me to do. Jesus didn't mind his business. And pastor, what does that have to do with Mary and Martha? In story number one, Jesus says, go and do. But in story number two, here's the message. Sit and stay. What, what he's telling us is this. We need to understand that in order for our hearts to be made right, it's not just, and listen to me, listen to my theology here. I'm not talking about salvation. I'm talking about on a continuous basis. In order for our hearts to be made right, we can't just come to church, say a little prayer, get saved, and all of a sudden expect our hearts to have no more issues. In order for our hearts to be made right, we've got to sit and stay at the feet of Jesus on a regular basis. He's got to fill us up in order for us to be able to give out and when you look at this story Martha is consumed and Mary is getting filled Martha you could say is focused on politics and Mary is focused on prayer and Martha is focused on correcting others well Mary is learning how to care for others and Martha is focused on a problem Mary is focused on an answer Martha is listening to the lies in our head Mary is listening to the words of eternal life Martha is feeding her soul with the poison of hate Mary is fueling hers with the principles of healing Martha is spending time letting the culture affect her relationship with Christ. Mary is spending time with Christ so she can affect the culture. Martha is reflecting upon what Mary is not doing for her. Mary is reflecting on what Christ would have her do for others. Martha is distracted by the mayhem. Mary is being discipled by the Messiah. Martha is focused on the news cycle while Mary is focused on learning from Jesus on how to break the cycle. We need to get our hearts right. I said it last week. I'll say it again. That doesn't mean we don't need legislation. I'll say it again. It doesn't mean that we don't need laws. Laws tame the sinful heart. When human beings are left to themselves, usually they will fall to their Lowest characteristics. Laws tame the heart. But Jesus changes the heart. We need to spend time in the presence of Jesus. In the first story about love your neighbor, the message is go and do. In the second story, attached right to it, it's sit and stay. Because in order to go and do the right way, you've got to sit and stay. What Jesus is saying is salvation is how your heart gets right. But spending the needed time with Christ is how it stays right. You can't keep pouring out love for your neighbor from your heart if your heart is constantly is not constantly refreshed with the love of God and the presence of Christ. Listen to me, church. If God is going to heal our hearts, we are going to have to spend more time with Jesus. More time listening to him than listening to news. Can I give you a news flash? Okay. Everything that we see is jaded. I know some people don't like to hear that. But you know, if you turn on this station, you're going to get this stream of news. That station, you're going to get that stream of news. You know it. Do I watch the news? Yes, I watch the news. But when I feel something going on, click. Because it'll change you. And, and I, 
want to go to the good news. The good news of the gospel, which is where liberty and justice for all can be really found. We need to let the love of Christ wash over us so that we can let love for others flow through us. I leave you with this, and then I want Pastor Ronald to minister this song that he wrote that I think is just so appropriate for today. And he wrote this one in 2009, right? Yeah. He told me he played it for me before, but I guess I didn't listen real good, but I listened real good this time. 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he, do not, he who does not love his brother who he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? Somebody said, yeah, well, the people I hate ain't my brothers. That's where you got it wrong. Because if they're on the planet, they're your brother. They're your sister. They're your neighbor. God expects you to treat them with his love no matter what they do, what they believe, or where they stand. God, heal our hearts. Would you minister? like you 
Jesus looks like you. He looks like you. So what will Jesus do? You're the hands and feet of Christ. If you want to know what he looks like, he looks like you. You're the only Jesus some will ever see. And you're the only words of life some will ever read. So let them see in you the one in whom is all they'll ever need. He looks like you. Jesus looks like you, he looks like you, so what will Jesus do, you're the hands and feet of Christ, if you want to know what he looks like, he looks like you, so what will Jesus do? such a powerful song, such an important question. It's a question that all of us need to ask. What would Jesus do? Used to be popular. Used to wear the bracelets, the hats, the everything. We seem to have forgotten about that. But it's such an important question to not ask with an answer already in mind, but to ask with a heart that says, truly show me, Lord, what would you do? My prayer is that we'd return to that question again in our time of crisis. And we'd be willing to listen, not with ears that are predetermined to hear only certain types of answers, but with ears that are open to what the Spirit of God would say. But I love the part of that song that says, He looks like you. Of all the things that God could have looked like when He came to earth, He chose to look like one of us. And the Bible says He, he didn't choose a beauty that would make us all want to just come to him. He chose to, be, he chose to be regular, just like you and me. John's gospel says that he left heaven and he moved into the neighborhood. He came to the place, earth, our communities, where he could feel and experience and walk and get to know us and love us and appreciate us and be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. And then ultimately he went to the cross where he paid the price for your sin and mine. Maybe you're watching today and you have never surrendered your life to Jesus, but I want you to know that Jesus chose to be one of us so that we can ultimately have what only he can give, and that is eternal life and a heart that is transformed. And oh, how our world needs that right now. If you're watching and you don't know Jesus today, I'd like to lead you in a prayer. Simply say this with me right there. Heavenly Father, today I give you my life. I ask you to forgive me as I place my faith in Jesus Christ. I'll never be the same in Jesus' name. If you prayed that prayer, the Bible says you're right with God. You're born again. If that's you, there's a little button on your screen. If you're watching on church online, click it. It's raise my hand so that we know that we can reach out and help you. If you're watching on another medium or platform, just write Jesus in the text, and one of our moderators will reach out to help you. 
Thanks so much for watching, but don't just stop there. Click the Watch Live button in the description below to join us for Faith Church Online every Sunday morning. And while you're there, you can set a reminder to come back Sundays at 9 and 11. If you'd also like to learn more about getting involved here at Faith Church, you can click the Connect button. And be sure to subscribe to this channel so that you don't miss a single video and maybe even share it with a friend. Thank you again for watching. And as always, remember, with Jesus, you are destined to win.